Hello, and welcome to Linux Action News, episode 154, recorded on September 13th, 2020. I'm Chris. And I'm Joe. Hello, Joe. Good to be connected with you. And I'm standing here holding my Pixel 3 running Android 11. So I think that's where we start this week. Yeah, after four developer previews and three betas, we've got the final release of Android 11. And it's mostly on the Pixels to start with, with some betas for some OnePlus and Xiaomi phones. But I'm dying to know, is it any different from 10? It's pretty low-key. I think the most improvements can be seen in the notifications, but even there, like with the new bubbles and notification stacks, I don't really use notifications much on my chat apps, so I don't really take advantage of that. And I don't know if Telegram is specifically taking advantage of it yet. It's probably the most low-key update I've ever gotten. At the same time, nothing's really jumped out at me like I haven't had horrible battery life. In fact, if anything, within the last couple of updates... The standby time on my Pixel 3 has gotten outrageous. Like, four days, maybe, just if I don't use it, because I have two phones, right, because I'm, I'm that guy. If I don't use it for, like, four days, it's still on. It's still it's low, but it's still going. Runtime, actual use in runtime, I think that's not doing so good, but the Pixel 3 is getting old. As far as, like, under-the-hood stuff in Android 11 that's got my attention, Google introduced a new out-of-memory adjuster design, that's something that goes in there and helps clean up things when the system starts to run low on RAM. But one of the things they did in the new release is they adjusted it to avoid killing a process if it would, quote, result in a user-perceptible interruption of service. So that seems like they've made accommodations for low-memory situations without, theoretically, directly impacting the user. I haven't hit those conditions yet, but I have in the past. And when that happens, I'm hoping for a better experience now. So did you update your Pixel 3 or did you go for a fresh installation? Because you said last week that it was running pretty slow at the moment. I did do an update and I'd say it's still <laughs> running about the same. Um, once it gets up and going, it's not that bad. It's the having to get up and go that takes quite a while. I have spent a little time trimming back some of my applications and I did some updates. There's new updates that are trickling in like often happens after a new Android release and not everybody's on the same schedule. As I go through some of that, it has gotten better, but no real difference overall. Like, ultimately, it's still turn it on, set it down. I Also, I, if I had it off for some reason, uh, maybe to save, like, ultimately, sometimes just to save data or to make sure my two different phones aren't competing for location information on some services, I just turn the phone off. And if I do that, I have to try to plug it in when I first turn it on because that, that good boot-up process where all that stuff loads just drains the battery. I think that's the case with any Android device, especially if you get a bunch of notifications all the time. They kind of stack up and it doesn't really know that you've already read those Telegram messages or emails or whatever on a different device and you just get bombarded. I hear that's better on the iPhone side of things. <laughs> right, yes. It must synchronize what messages have been read because I never get old notifications about old chats. So it just doesn't happen on the iOS side. I'm not quite sure why that is, but I prefer that <laughs> by quite a bit. That being said, Android 11 has kind of taken some of the nicer things about the iPhone 10 generation gestures and incorporated them into 11. Now that they've had some extra time to bake, I think they're in a pretty good place. I, I think I might prefer the, the way it works on Android where I swipe up from the bottom and I get my recent app tray and then I swipe more and there's all the apps. I think I'm liking this. They really got there in 10, but in 11 it just feels even more refined. What about the new power menu stuff? The fact that you can control smart home devices and stuff from that, that seems a weird place to put it. I like that it's a physical button, though. That is nice. 
Um, and now the button's starting to do a lot of things. You know, you double press the button on the Pixel device and it launches the camera. You hold it, and what you get now is a UI that looks very much like the HomeKit UI, if you're familiar with that on iOS, or the Control Center pull-down, where I've got power off and restart. I've got my Google Pay cards right here in the middle, and then my top devices. And it seems to, I'm not sure how it sorts them. It's not alphabetical. It seems to be like which ones are actually active, and it puts the active devices at the top of the list. What's pretty neat about that is just with one press of the button, I can now turn and turn off all of the lights in the studio. I like that. All right. What about the Android Auto stuff? That apparently has been improved. Yeah, although I think the major improvement there, I'd already been rocking because I had a beta of Android Auto, and my car doesn't support the wireless aspect, which is sort of the nice thing to have in Android Auto in 11, is the wireless stuff, and mine's wired. Okay. I think it's a worthwhile upgrade overall because there was really no negatives that I could see, and you get some new stuff. But if you're wondering when it'll land on your device, dear listener, we do have a link to xdadevelopers.com, which has the Android 11 update tracker. It has the various manufacturers and the either estimated date of arrival or the status, at least. And of course, the Android open source project has now got the source code for Android 11. So we're starting to see the very first custom ROMs become available. So hopefully it won't be too long before we've got some stable alternatives that are based on AOSP. Also on the Android Go side of things, it's interesting to see some of the higher-end features coming to the Android Go edition phones, if you recall, or the lower-tier Android devices with generally small amounts of RAM. They're kind of seeing some nice quality of life improvements, including some of those touch gestures I just mentioned. But also, they seem to be preparing for more RAM in these Go devices. And you might wonder, in recent smartphone times, how common are low-memory devices, even the cheap ones? Well, XDA developers did a little digging, and they say since September 3rd, 2019, the date when Google released Android 10, there have been 367 new devices added to the Google Play console device catalog that have at most, at most, 2 gigs of RAM, and either launched with Android 10 or upgraded to it in the lifecycle that was captured. But if you include devices to the catalog after September 3rd, 2019, that either launched with Android 9 Pi or haven't yet received an update to Android 10 because it's still in the works, then that number jumps to almost 1,500 that have launched since September 3rd, 2019. So there's still a lot of devices being launched. It's not insane numbers, but you're, you're seeing devices come on, be registered, and be completely connected to the Google ecosystem still that have less than 2 gigs of RAM. Well, there's a big market out there that isn't necessarily Europe or North America. You know, it's a big world. Right, and Android Go Edition is targeted right at that big world. And it seems like it's not that big of a compromise anymore to have a Go Edition phone. Faster launching times, better encryption support, and different types of touch gesture support now. I mean, it's getting pretty equivalent to standard Android. Yeah, it makes me feel like I want Android Go on a more powerful phone. They're not going to allow that by default, but it sounds like a pretty appealing prospect to me. Well, regardless if it's an Android Go device or a Pixel running Android 11, they're all powered by ARM chips. And as we're recording this, it looks very likely that it will be announced soon that SoftBank is set to sell their ARM holdings to NVIDIA for around $40 billion. And potentially, because the story is rapidly developing, it could happen the day you're listening to this or shortly after. Yeah, this has been rumored for what feels like months now. Various people were going to buy ARM 
but then it seemed to trickle down to just NVIDIA. And now it seems like those details have been worked out and we're getting reports that are pretty firm now. So I suppose we have to treat it as though it is happening. It seems so. The thing that has shifted over the last couple of months is they were sorting out this other issue that was involved with some of the IP licensing. It hinged on SoftBank ending a messy dispute between ARM and the leads of its China joint venture. Uh, And there was problems there. In fact, there's still interesting rumors developing there. But several people close to the SoftBank deal said that the matter was now, quote, resolved, although it's not quite clear what's happening with that China arm and if it's continuing on its own. That's some of the rumors right now. But it seems that that messy dispute, as the Financial Times article puts it, is what was holding it up. And now that's resolved. So they're going to proceed really early this week. This comes at a pretty interesting time, given how Intel is struggling with their 7 nanometer. That was after it took them years to sort out the 10 nanometer development process. Uh, and we're still waiting for a complete shift to even 10 nanometer. They're, they're still selling some CPUs that are 14 nanometer. And the reason why this matters, these nanometers, is because it's an indicator of Intel's manufacturing capability and capacity. They used to be the king. They were the ones that constantly were breaking Moore's law. And now they can't get their process down. They can't get the results that they need. So yeah, I think it is interesting. Not only that timing, while Intel's on the ropes and has been for a while now, for years now, I think you could say, but also you can't ignore the fact that Apple just announced they're transitioning their entire Mac line to a series of custom in-house built ARM-based CPUs, which by all accounts are going to be very high performance. will probably trickle down into their mobile line as well. And it seems like they've just bet the next 20 years on ARM over there at Apple. And The other side there is Apple and NVIDIA don't get along. They have bad blood. This comes not too long after SoftBank bought ARM in the first place for $32 billion. So they're going to make a pretty tidy profit here if this $40 billion figure turns out to be true. Right. And there has to be a calculus there by NVIDIA. This has to be a plan to transform their entire product lineup. When you think of NVIDIA chips right now, You think of chips that are largely focused at the high end of the market, powerful graphics processors, or crazy fast ARM CPUs designed for machine learning inside a car dashboard. Things that scientific research might use or other things. Um, But this deal, once they own ARM holdings, kind of puts them in the whole range of the market. So not just the high end now, but also those Android Go devices we talked about. And all of those 5G towers that have ARM controllers and ARM processors in the actual antennas that help do the beamforming. And not to mention just the entire swath of devices in the IoT category and and even set-top boxes that all use ARM CPUs that NVIDIA was never in those markets, and now they will be. Yeah, it means they'll be in pretty much all of the hardware markets from thermostats and IoT devices through to the servers that are crunching the numbers on them and then also the GPUs that are crunching the machine learning stuff. It feels like they're just going to be in the market completely top to bottom now. It seems like every time something of this scale happens, which we have to acknowledge as we record has not happened yet but seems lined up, when something of this scale does happen there tends to be a reaction. And you do wonder if that reaction, I mean, maybe wonder, I hope, maybe is the better way to put it, that that reaction is an investment in risk five, Or if I could wave a magic wand, honestly, it would be an investment in 
open power PC because we've already got workstations and desktops with that architecture ready to go with PCI Express slots running Linux. Like it's really close. It just needs to close that 10% gap and have an investment to get the CPU down a bit. I, I feel like there's a potential, maybe possible hope <laughs> that that could happen, that one of those platforms sees an investment from this. You're a dreamer, Chris. You're a dreamer. <laughs> Wouldn't it be nice, though? <laughs> It would be nice. And I think that we will have some competition there because it does look like RISC-V is coming along. And I think we are going to see much more powerful RISC-V boards over the next year or so. But as for how much competition they will give NVIDIA and ARM, I can't see it being huge. They'll find a niche and it will do well. But it, it just seems like NVIDIA now have just got it all sewn up to me. I agree. Although I'd I'd be happy if we could just get it in the professional workstation and laptop market. Maybe a few servers, maybe a couple of little small boards. That's all I'm asking. <laughs> well, I'll give it a few years and you never know. Linux.ting.com. Get $25 off a cell phone bill at Linux.ting.com. With Ting, there's no contracts, no commitments. So you can try Ting for a month with no strings attached. The average Ting bill is just $23 a month per phone. So you'll get a month of free service when you go to linux.ting.com and use our $25 promo code. And while you're there, see if your device is already compatible because it's pretty straightforward to switch over if it is. And Ting offers LTE coverage on three nationwide networks. The one that I'm using right now is Verizon Wireless, and it's amazing as a backup. I have to say Verizon Wireless has one of the best networks, and it's great to see Ting work with them on that. But there's two other networks to pick from as well. So you just check the coverage and choose the one that works best. If you're often around Wi-Fi, why are you paying for a monthly set of data? With Ting, you just pay for the talk, the text, and the data that you actually use each month. If you use less, you pay less. If you're working from home, you don't need to be paying for a data connection you're not using very often. Especially if you know how to sync podcasts or sync your music before you hit the road, you can even save more data. Ting is not a prepaid cell phone company. At the end of the month, you're billed for the talk, the text, and the data you use. So go to linux.ting.com. Everything's laid out, explained. You can check to see if your device is compatible or grab a brand new device straight from Ting or just get a SIM card. linux.ting.com. Let's talk about Mozilla again then. And this week, they launched what they're calling a pilot program to give developers a way to promote their add-ons on addons.mozilla.org. Well, this is how we're going to watch Mozilla die, unfortunately. And I don't say that uh, with any levity. This really is depressing to read. And part of it is just my gut instinct. I don't normally lead with that on Linux Action News. I try to lead with the facts first. But in this case, we've been watching really what is a long string of stories that are linking together that demonstrate a collapse of direction for Mozilla and an inability to execute that has cost over 200 people their very valuable jobs. And when I read this, what I see is a pathway to monetizing add-ons. And I, there's a lot of things I don't like about that. But I don't even like the way they're approaching it. I don't like the way they even speak about it. It's stuffed with corporate acronyms, their own internal acronyms that they're now exposing to the public. And what appears to be essentially a plan to limit what kind of made Firefox great and instead try to monetize that strategy. I think you could say I'm being cynical here because the way they talk about it is this is going to support developers. That's why they're creating this program in the first place, they say. They'll have tiers where they can have unverified and manually reviewed extensions. So there is some 
story for people that don't want to get involved in this process. But when you get into the paid services, you get things like a verified badge on your extension, which says that it's been verified by Mozilla. You also can choose to buy sponsored placement on the Mozilla add-ons front page, sort of like an app store looking front page with your app placed right above the most popular add-ons. All right, let me play devil's advocate then. They need to make some non-Google revenue. This is surely a reasonable way to do it. I hope so. I hope it doesn't end up limiting who can participate in the add-on ecosystem and ultimately lead to just less and less interesting Firefox add-ons. We'll see. I guess only time will tell us with this particular one. But my gut read on this is being informed by like two or three signals. The first and maybe the most predominant signal is this has gotten very little coverage. Hardly any tech outlet is covering this. No one seems to care. That's a huge red flag for Mozilla. Number two, I will be honest, one of the things that has been an indicator for me for a while with Mozilla is how they speak to the world. And the language they choose to use, the way they choose to dress it up instead of speaking plainly and directly, is a warning flag to me. And the way that this thing is just packed full of acronyms, their own acronyms like AMO for the Mozilla add-on store, I'm not a fan of that. These things all kind of add up to kind of give me a bad read on this. And I'm I guess I'm combining that with their history so far. And it just doesn't seem like they're trending in the right direction. If this has got a lot of interest... If there was some reaction, even negative reaction, that would be a different signal. But you're saying that they're just not relevant enough for the non-open source tech press to care about them. Yeah, I think that's kind of it. And I think you could say it feels like they've slipped out of interest from the mainstream press. Nobody's really writing about this stuff. No one's really writing about many things regarding Mozilla or Firefox right now or Thunderbird. Thunderbird's getting very little coverage at the moment. I think the interest is dropping off. Unfortunately, this is what kind of begins that slide into irrelevancy. But what else could they do except try and look for areas they can make some money? And with this particular case, to make those extensions verified, they have to go through a process of manual verification, and that costs money. And so it's not unreasonable for them to ask for money from developers to pay the people whose job it is to verify them. I'd probably even be willing to pay for a decent add-on if it truly improved my workflow. This is something that happens on the Apple platform. You can charge for Safari extensions, which sometimes seems ludicrous, like $4 for a browser extension. So it better be worth it. Uh, I, I don't see that likely playing out here. I don't, see, I don't see that happening. But like I said, time will tell. I'm hopeful the lack of interest and traction doesn't seem to be a solid indicator that's going to go that direction. But I'll, I'll take the hopeful uh, route with you, Joe. You know, you're such an optimist. I know, I'm known for my optimism, you know. <laughs> well, this next story is either going to read like a new tool in the toolbox or the next step in a corporate takeover of Linux and free software as we know it. Microsoft has seen fit to add file system access to WSL2, which I suppose could be pretty damn handy on systems that have multiple OSs installed. Yeah, so if you're dual booting Linux and Windows, specifically on two separate physical disks at the moment, but we'll see where this goes in the future, then you will be able to access your Linux disk via Windows Subsystem for Linux 2 with a simple mount command, and then it will show up right there in Windows Explorer, or whatever they're calling the file manager these days. 
This is the opposite of what I, and I know a lot of our audience probably does, is I have Windows in a VM, like a VHD file, and there is it's possible when I need to to actually boot from that, but typically I'm just using Linux. And here it's kind of the opposite happening. There, like, you, like you said, though, there is that limitation. So just to put this concretely, it means that it is not possible to use WSL to mount a partition on a boot device because that device is already attached to Windows. So if you are dual booting from the same disk, that disk is already in use. And the other limitation that kind of combines with this is it's it's a whole disk mount right now. It's not like one particular partition on that disk. It's you kind of expose the entire thing to the subsystem, uh, which is great, kind of a cool feature. But in some scenarios, could be a limitation that you need to be aware of. Yeah, but if you've got one big spinning Rust disk with all your data sets on it or something, then I could see that being very useful. The other thing that's interesting to see is Microsoft taking the effort to backport WSL2 to older versions of Windows 10, the older builds that are run like at corporate environments, that initially that didn't seem like it was going to happen. It was like this build and forward gets the new fancy WSL, and the older builds are going to stick with WSL1. But it looks like via Windows update mechanisms over time, those older enterprise builds are also going to get the new WSL2 hotness. Now, of course, you've been able to mount Linux file systems like ext4 in Windows for quite some time using third-party tools. But now we're talking built into Windows, not having to install something else. And I think they'll get over that whole disk problem soon enough. I, I can't see them not being able to find a workaround for that. And if it's in Windows, then it's past all of the compliance checks and everything. You're not having to have a separate compliance form and all the rest of it for that bit of software that you're using to mount your Linux file systems, which may or may not pass compliance. And that's what we're talking about here. We're talking about the corporate environment. Yeah, two thoughts on that. Not only is this built in, but it's whatever file system the Linux kernel that they're using WSL2 has support for, which could also include things like XFS and other really great file systems. So that's nice. But the other aspect that strikes me here is I picture that that younger version of me that was struggling to run desktop Linux. Like now, I've used desktop Linux for so long that I I take it for granted that I can use desktop Linux. But there was absolutely a time. I was struggling to integrate into a corporate environment, and I had to have really slow, crappy Windows VMs, or as I got more uh, established, I got a separate Windows PC. But it was embarrassing because the Linux guy had to have a Windows machine, and the guys would always razz me about that. And I was trying out all kinds of crazy distributions to try to get this to work. And now it, it's, it's right here, all, all nice and tidy. I, I could run Linux, but if I had to do something under Windows, I could reboot. I'd have those Windows tools, like the classic one for me back in the day was the VMware ESX Management Console. And if I need to get access to the stuff that's on my primary workstation OS, I have a pretty good terminal. I have a Linux user land, and I can mount that drive now. I just think about that, and that would have been a great tool. That would have made things so much smoother. I would not have been experimenting with crazy file system drivers that caused Windows to blue screen dozens of times. Like, there's all these things you had to do to try to get this to work. So I I think it is actually kind of significant in that sense, and that's how I would employ something like this. I, I could now get to my Linux stuff, which is my primary environment, when I need to go into Windows to solve a problem. That's pretty handy. Well, if you're going for a proper bare metal Ubuntu installation in the corporate environment, good news, because Canonical is adding Active Directory support to the Ubiquiti installer for 2010. 
Snuck just in under the wire, 2010 will support enabling Active Directory for logins right there in the installer. This is fantastic to see. OpenSUSE makes this pretty easy. And Fedora. I was just installing Fedora 33 last week. And right there is a button to join to an Active Directory. This is becoming table stakes for workstation OSs. It's great to see Canonical add this. The primary reason you like to see something like this is not only can you then integrate it into an installation script, which makes automated deployments easier, but also you have to solve this yourself. And there's like three or four different ways to solve this problem. And it's nice just to have a vendor-supported mechanism. And then this eventually will graduate its way into an LTS release, which then eventually ends up shipping on actual hardware, which means you buy a laptop from Dell or HP or Lenovo running Ubuntu, and right out of the box, that thing can connect to your Active Directory. And I absolutely have people in mind that are deep into the Microsoft ecosystem. You know, they're businesses that have been around for more than a minute. (laughs) And so they've invested heavily in an on-premises login system and on-premises file sharing and on-premises shared printing. And a lot of times, especially in the Pacific Northwest, from the 90s forward, Microsoft was the go-to solution. And, And they've been with it now for years. They're not switching. They're just not. That's the business will run that suite until the business ends. And they're perfectly happy with it, but they won't even consider hardware that doesn't tie in with their Active Directory. It's just not even an option. From mobile to all other little devices like their key card system they have for unlocking their doors, all of it connects into AD. Even cloud infrastructure services they have with third-party vendors actually use their, their AD credentials to authenticate their staff and stuff. I mean, they're deep into it. So something like this means that this is a real possibility. And as soon as this starts shipping, I have somebody I'm going to recommend it to. And I think they're going to give their first Linux desktop a go because they got a laptop sitting ready for it. They're just not going to do it unless it works with Active Directory. And the kind of like guides that are available online that I sent him, it just did not work. He just didn't take it. He just, no, I'm not doing it. (laughs) I'm not not having this. You realize this is like two clicks in Windows, he says. (laughs) Yeah, and that's what it's going to be now, which is great. Yeah, right there at the installation, too. So, when I mean, in theory, right after the first boot, you're just logging in with your network credentials. Yeah, well, you'll have to let us know how you get on with that, whether you manage to uh, convert him. Well, you know us, Joe. We're going to follow that and all the other stories that develop in the Linux and open source world. So be sure you go to linuxactionnews.com slash subscribe. Make sure your subscription is fresh, so that way you get every new episode that comes out. And you can go to linuxactionnews.com slash contact for ways to get in touch with us. And here's a pro tip. If you haven't yet, go subscribe to the All Jupiter Broadcasting Shows feed, either from our main website or just search in your podcast catcher of choice because when we do release new stuff that may or may not be in the works, that's where it'll land first. And also spread the word that we're back. Did you know the number one source of actual marketing for podcasts is just word of mouth, your recommendation. If you know someone who would like the show, share it with them. We'll be back next Monday with our weekly take on the latest Linux and open source news. You can find me at my site, chrislass.com. And you can find me at joelrest.com. Thanks for joining us, and we will see you next week. See you later.